pray. Father, how good it is to be in your house today with your people. Praise you, Father, that we are your people. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We know that. And therefore, we rejoice and look for every opportunity to glorify God in our bodies and with our words and attitudes and responses to circumstances. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see clearly what your word teaches about suffering this morning. I pray, Father, that you would use it to equip us a little better in how to not only respond to trial, but how to minister to one another. And so, Father, we commit this time to your care, and we ask you to bless it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by thanking you for the outpouring of comments uh, this past week, comments, emails, uh, uh, personal phone calls in response to uh, the message last week on suffering with joy. Uh, I frankly did not expect the response that I got from that, and uh, honestly, I, I probably should have, uh, because I know so many of you have experienced both the suffering and the joy in suffering, and you can only have that if you also have the Holy Spirit living in your heart. For the faithful follower of Christ, um, experiences like this can open our hearts to the love of God through personal suffering in extraordinary ways. This is because suffering, even when it is brought to bear on our lives by our own personal sin, even that kind of, of, of suffering, God is, God's word is sufficient to address and address sufficiently so that we would be filled with joy in the middle of our suffering. This morning, as promised, I want to talk to you again about personal suffering, and I'm calling this message, if you've seen the title, you may have laughed or been confused, uh, Biblical Sufferology. Because I, I want you to become a little bit more familiar with the biblical theology of suffering. And, and I would suspect that that some in this room didn't even know that there was such a thing as a biblical theology of suffering. But there is. My concern here is, as one of the shepherds of this little flock, is that when suffering comes along and kicks the front door of your heart in upon you and threatens to destroy you from the inside out, you will be equipped to stand firm in the grace of God and rejoice in your sufferings. It would be impossible, I confess, to cover a full theology of suffering in 45 to 50 minutes. So I think I'll just take an hour or two <laughs> if the nursery workers will let me. But it, it really is a massive topic. And so this morning I'm, I'm going to whittle it down to four basic points. And here they are. Number one. God's presence in suffering. Number two, God's purposes in suffering. Number three, God's providence in suffering. And then finally and practically, caring for those who suffer. I don't want you just to, to fill your head full of theology and truth, although we definitely want that. 
But the theology ought to take you somewhere. It ought to move you. It ought, theology, first of all, leads to doxology, right? Worship. But it should also move us toward ministry to one another, which is why we do some of the unusual things we do, like what I do at the end of every service. Now, if I happen to not be able to finish this morning, I'm probably just going to land the plane and be done with it, uh, and I can point you to some resources that you can read on your own. But the first observation I want to make this morning is this, and this is very obvious. All humans suffer. All humans suffer. Now, how many of you would self-identify as human? It doesn't matter who you are or where you hail from. Suffering is just part of life. And let me just give you an example, a couple of examples from uh, my immediate family. Uh, when I was in seminary, we had a, a son born who caught a virus uh, very quickly after birth, damaged his heart, um, repercussions for the rest of his life, lots of hospitalizations, uh, defibrillator, um, years later, my wife was in a terrible car wreck that may have been the cause of uh, a lifetime of uh, pain uh, in her back after many surgeries and procedures. After that, we had a son who uh, was acting a little strange and uh, found out that he had type 1 diabetes. Uh, the after effects will last for the rest of his life. His care will be for the rest of his life. For my part, as you know, uh, hospitalization last Christmas, uh, a year ago, with COVID-19. Look, all of us suffer. All of us suffer. We suffered to varying degrees. I was on the phone uh, this week with the Hornbrooks. Um, as um, there's a, a death in the family, and also not only the Hornbrooks, but the Joneses as well. And we need to be praying for them and encouraging them. And I'm going to show you a little bit how to do that here at the end. But the point is, we all suffer. We know that one day God will make good on his promises to bring his elect to their appointed glory. But for now, we live in a time that can be compared to a young woman giving birth. Before she can experience the joy of holding her precious little child in her arms, there will be pain. And this is an analogy that the scriptures use repeatedly. And so it is with the people of God. We suffer in this life, but one day our suffering will give way to inexpressible and eternal joy. Full of glory, Peter says, at the revelation of the children of God. The eschatological redemption of our bodies. In other words, the redemption of of our bodies, the glorification of, of our bodies that will take place when the Lord returns or we see him face to face. But as we wait for that day, the Lord wants us to know how, he wants us to know that he has not left us to endure these things alone. And that launches us into point number one. God's presence in suffering. If you are not a child of God today, you don't, you don't get this. I'm sorry. I just listen and respond as the Holy Spirit prompts you to respond. The presence of God in suffering, this is so precious. Let me, re, 
let me remind you of three important truths. And by the way, there are pens in the pew ahead of you for a reason. And that is to take notes and to write notes that will help you participate in small group this week or next week or whenever that is. Um, I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm going to give you a ton of scripture. And you might just, don't try to write them down. Maybe just write down the references so that you can come back to them later. So there are three important truths about God, and you should definitely write this down. Three important truths about God that you need to understand or have some level of grip on if you are going to respond to suffering in a proper manner, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Are you ready? Here are the three truths. Number one, God is completely sovereign. Sovereignty has to do with kingship and authority. God is king over all. It also means that he rules over all. He controls everything. He is in control. He is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from God. Number two, God is infinite in wisdom. He is infinite in wisdom. And number three, God is perfect in love. He is completely sovereign. He is infinite in wisdom. And he is perfect in love. Jerry Bridges says, in his love, God always wills what is best for you. In his wisdom, he knows what is best. And in his power, his sovereignty, he is the power to bring it about. I often remind myself in suffering that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, which means if I'm suffering right now, I should understand that God is not withholding from me that which is good. He is giving to me that which is good. Even if we don't know what that good is. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that the sovereignty of God is proclaimed in every chapter of the Bible. It seems ubiquitous. It's, it's almost everywhere. For example, we read in Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Listen carefully to this. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad things come? I realize that sometimes it's sometimes difficult to remember that God is sovereign over every disaster. We like the fact that God is sovereign over our blessings, and when he blesses us, we thank him, I presume. And it's good to thank God for his blessings. It's good to recognize his sovereignty when he gives us every good and perfect gift. It's a little more difficult to look face-to-face -face into the eyes of, of devastating trouble, devastating news, and believe that it is good, and that God is giving you good. He is sovereign over your suffering. My friends, listen very carefully. This is your hope. This is our hope. When we suffer, 
It is not random. It is not out of control. It is not something that descended upon us in its own sovereignty. Rather, it is carefully measured and governed by God for your good. Our hope is that our suffering is not random and meaningless. It's something that's absolutely ruled by the infinitely wise and powerful and sovereign God. We also tend to forget that though the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was an amazing demonstration of the love of God, it was also a horrible experience of the worst kind of suffering imaginable. And through that suffering, God did something good. He purchased your salvation. So don't think that your suffering being good is unprecedented. To the contrary, the very foundation of your hope is that God brought suffering upon his own son so that you might be saved. So we tend to forget we tend to forget the connection between our suffering and God's sovereignty over our suffering. Nevertheless, we believe that God sent his son to experience all of this for us. And my friend, if you are still on the fence about whether you believe in God or whether you should lay all of your hope on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then you have no redeeming category for your suffering. It's just a bunch of bad stuff that happens. And it's meaningless. There isn't any hope in them. There isn't any purpose for them. Nothing really matters. This is nihilism, nihilism. Life is just a meaningless journey that leads to nowhere. And then you die. There's no hope for anything good after you die. No reward, no glory, no forgiveness, no reconciliation with God. No, no anything, just non-existence. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there is a God. And you are accountable to him. And he has spoken. You know that intuitively, though you try to suppress it daily. I want to invite you to stop leaning on your own understanding. Your understanding doesn't work. God's wisdom does. Quit making it up as you go along. Fly to Christ. Embrace his word. Repent of your sins and discover everlasting joy. One of the places where we find God declaring that he is sovereign over our sufferings is all the way back in the book of Exodus. This is a powerful, very short, very powerful text. Let me just give you some background here. This is Exodus 4, 10 and 11. You should definitely write that reference down. Exodus 4, 10 and 11. So here's Moses. Moses has fled out of Egypt. He is, uh, he's wandering around Mount Sinai, which had not been named yet, and uh, he comes across this bush that appears to be on fire. It's not on fire. It's glowing. It's flaming. It's something. It's the glory of God. God speaks out of the, out of the, out of the bush, the burning bush, and he says, Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt. 
and rescue my people. And you remember what happens, right? Uh, Moses says, Lord, you got the wrong man. You got the wrong man. I can't speak. I'm not eloquent. I can't convince you know, millions of people to follow me. And, and that's what was needed, he thought. And let me just say it in, in, in Moses' words. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to me. In other words, I haven't gotten any better at speaking since we began this conversation. I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, I want you to hear this. Every word matters. And the Lord says, Who has made man's mouth? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so when your son asks, Dad, who caused my diabetes? Is it not I, the Lord? Who caused my child to be born with Down syndrome? Is it not I, the Lord? Who gave me this brain that so often fails me? Is it not I, the Lord? Who made me unable to have a child? Is it not I, the Lord? You see, beloved, God is very, very present in your trial, your suffering. And that is your hope. God has never done a single thing in this world that was not absolutely purposeful for his glory and the good of his people. So whatever it is that you're suffering with today, God is present. God is in it. God is before it. God is over it. And God is for you. So if you're going to trust God in your suffering, you must believe that God is completely sovereign. He's infinite in wisdom and he's perfect in love. This is not punishment. And that sovereignty, wisdom, and love are actively engaged in every aspect of your current problem. No matter how big or how small. Again, I say, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You know, if you're, if you're following the good shepherd, imperfectly though it may be, God is treating you as sons, as children, precious, precious, beloved children. He is not treating you like a judge. He's caring for you. And you know what? Sometimes dads give to their children what they don't want because they need it. And so you see, God is present in your suffering. Second, let's consider God's purposes for suffering. Okay, you're going to need to write a lot of references for this one. God's purposes in suffering. There are so many. Um... I heard a, a preacher this past week break them down into four major categories. I, I haven't reproduced those here. 
Um, but there's a lot of them, and I'm not going to have time to get through all of them. So God's purposes for suffering. Because the sovereignty of God is actively present in your life, you can be sure that he has specific purposes for your suffering. And let me just name a few. Number one, to humble you. Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember, okay, so this is, this is Moses, again, talking to the people of Israel. It's Deuteronomy, so they've already done their 40 years in the wilderness. And the Lord is about to tell them why, what his purpose was for the 40 years. Deuteronomy 8.2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments or not. You know what? Suffering reveals what is really in your heart. And if you respond rightly to suffering, especially a more extreme kind of suffering, what might feel like a hopeless kind of suffering, and you respond to that, you know what's going to happen? I can tell you this by my own experience. That the Lord reveals what is truly in your heart. And that's a wonderful thing. I mean, cancer is a terrible thing. But if you don't know it's there, it's going to kill you. God uses your suffering to reveal your sin and to humble you. You can also see 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. Secondly, to wean us from the world. Suffering can wean us from the world. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. By the way, Light and momentary is not how we would describe his suffering. I mean, he really suffered. And yet he calls it light and momentary affliction. And it is preparing for us, notice God being proactive here, he is preparing for us through suffering an eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. You can also look at Hebrews 11, verse 16. Number three, suffering reminds us of the value of God's promises of future grace. His promises of future grace. Romans 8, 17 and 18 Paul writes, and if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The inheritance, the inheritance, the inheritance we live for the inheritance, which is another way of saying we live for resurrection. We long and we live for the prospect of seeing him face to face. 
I call that future grace. That's present grace. Past grace is your salvation. Present grace is his daily sustaining you. Future grace is when you will see him in glory. And you know what? I'll tell you what, when I was in the hospital, I longed for that day. And God did such wonderful things in my heart, exposing sin, reminding me of his care and his promises. Number four, it equips us to comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. And so God comforts us in our affliction, but he does that for a purpose, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. God gives you comfort in the midst of your suffering. If he gives you joy in the midst of your suffering, it is for a purpose. It's not supposed to dead end or cul-de-sac in your life and heart. You're to learn from it. To learn how to minister to others who suffer. Suffering people, people who have suffered, are the best at caring for those who suffer. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. You could also look at Hebrews 13, 3. There, there are scriptures for all of these and many more. Let me just rifle through a few more. God uses suffering to chasten us for sin. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. 30. Uh, by the way, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, you should think Lord's Supper. That's the classic Lord's Supper passage with the warning that if you um, take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And he says, and for this reason, many of you are sick and some of you have died. It's discipline because of sin. It builds Christian character, Romans 5, 3. This is what I preached on last week. Ultimate comfort and praise from the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 10. 1 Peter 5, 10. One day, we will see the Lord, and everything will be made right. And 1 Peter 1.7 says, uh, suffering it proves your faith. How you, listen, J.C. Ryle once said, and this may be a, just a little harsh, but I think true. What you are in the day of trial is what you are and nothing more. I think J.C. Ryle must have suffered. It draws us closer to God, Philippians 3, 10. It draws our hearts to heaven. The Apostle Paul said there in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And where was he writing that from? Jail. In Rome, no doubt. And suffering reminds us of our future reward, Romans 8, we already looked at that. 2 Corinthians 4.17, how about Revelation 2.10, we sang Revelation song this morning. It's good to sing that song because it reminds us of what lays ahead. And it turns us from a dangerous direction. It turns us from a dangerous direction. 
suffering does. I mentioned last week that it was, it was my mother's suffering that, that opened her heart to Christ. She was finally ready to hear, just a few years before she met her Lord. And so God has many purposes for the suffering, for your suffering. And this brings us to the third point. We, we've learned about God's presence in suffering and now God's purposes in suffering. Let's talk about God's providence in suffering. God's providence in suffering. When we think about the sovereignty of God over suffering, we're really talking about his providence. Um, miracles are amazing when you read about them in Scripture. And surely God still steps into time and does something miraculous. And we don't always get to see it. But it's this punctiliar moment when the Lord invades the reality and changes something and then as if he goes back to heaven. It's, it's a miracle. We, under, we understand that he can do that. The thing that's really baffling is providence. Because God in his providence is accomplishing all his holy will in every circumstance without causing anyone to sin without causing anyone to do what is evil. In his providence, he works together all things among all peoples. This is providence. Let me just define it a little more precisely. God's providence is his constant care for and absolute rule over his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. The providence of God is the invisible hand of God governing and sustaining all of his creation in such a way that it brings about his perfect will in the affairs of this world. Augustine said, Nothing, therefore, happens unless the omnipotent God wills it to happen. He either permits it to happen or he brings it about. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. God's providence rules over all. What, God dis, what, what, what should distinguish suffering of believers from the suffering of unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving and all-wise God. Our suffering has meaning. Our suffering has purpose. It's purposed in his eternal plan. And he brings or allows to come to pass into our lives only that which is for his glory and for your ultimate good. I think I've told you before, I've, I heard one of my favorite preachers say, um, God is doing 10,000 things in your suffering and you only know of three of them and maybe not that many. Beloved, we should not allow ourselves to be offended by the thought of God being sovereign over your suffering. We should take comfort in this truth. Whatever kind of suffering you may be experiencing just now, we know that God has a loving and wise purpose for it. It is carefully measured for you. 
And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of an escape so that you may be able to endure it. Many people in the Bible understood this truth. It's wonderful that I can stand up here and offer you theology from the New Testament. I think it's even sweeter when we look back at the Old Testament and realize they, they all knew this. The men and women of God always believed this. For example, Hezekiah said, Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Isn't that interesting? It was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. I don't think I've said this publicly, but when I was coming out of the hospital, just thinking about all the things that, uh, that happened just in my heart during that time. I remembered Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who after coming out of the gulag, coming to America, he wrote his book. One of the things he said was, bless you, prison, for what he had learned while he was there. And I came out of COVID saying, bless you, COVID because of the things in my heart that he exposed and the love that he poured out on me in the middle of suffering. Joseph said to his brothers, here's another one who thought and believed that God's sovereignty was over his suffering. Joseph said to his brothers, remember at the end of the story, well, let's back up the beginning of the story, right? Joseph was a pest to his brothers and what do you do if you have a brother who's a pest? Well, don't do what you're, <laughs> don't sell him into slavery. But that's what Joseph's brothers did. They sold him into human trafficking. Really. And he just disappeared. They, they lied to their dad, said, dad said they, uh, he'd been killed. And so he goes to Egypt. He gets hired by Potiphar, one of the leading uh, attendance to Pharaoh, and he is falsely accused, thrown in jail. Through God's providence, he is brought out of jail, and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. A famine comes into the land. Joseph is in charge of all the food, and his brothers show up because they're desperate for food. And no doubt it had been, what, 20 years since they had seen each other? And after their father died, the brothers presented themselves. They, they were thinking the father was holding Joseph back from doing any kind of retribution. And here's what Joseph said. Do not be afraid. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Who brought, who brought Joseph to Egypt? Was it the brothers? Yes. Were they exercising the freedom of their will? Absolutely. Was it God? Yes. Does he express his will? Absolutely. Yes. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
Let's just, there's a, we get some clarity if we look at uh, Psalm chapter 105. Psalm 105, 16 and 17. I remember when I discovered this in the text and it shocked me. It's just so clarifying to this because that's from Joseph's perspective. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What about God's perspective? Well, here's God's perspective. God summoned a famine. This is what it says, Psalm 105, 16 and 17. God summoned the famine on the land. He broke all the supply of bread and he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Again, who sent Joseph to Egypt? You say, well, the famine precipitated a series of events that no one was really in control of. That's not what God says. I was not only sovereign over you putting your brother in that pit and selling him. I was the one who called for the famine. And the reason you're standing before your brother this day is because I have a master plan that involves the children of Israel though there were only approximately 70 of them, that he would raise them up to be a mighty nation. David wrote this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your law. Psalm 119:67. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your rules. Psalm 119, 71. Psalm 119, 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Isn't that interesting? In faithfulness you have afflicted me. He understood that his suffering came from a God who is sovereign, wise, and full of love for you. Jeremiah said, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. It's Jeremiah confessing that he believed, he understood that the Lord brings grief, carefully measured, specifically for you, for God's glory and your joy. So we've seen the, God's presence in suffering, God's purpose in suffering, God's providence in suffering. And now let's just take a few minutes to talk about how to care for those who are, in, who are suffering. Just because it is God who is at work in them doesn't mean that you don't have any involvement. God chooses to work through his people. He ministers care through his people. And so compassion speaks with those who grieve. And sometimes when it's a very, very serious, um, crushing kind of suffering that you experience, we've had friends who've lost children, a number of friends who've lost children who are way younger than what would be expected for a boy to die. And what do you do? How do you minister care? Well, don't go in there with all the scriptures that I just gave you. Just, just stick them in your back pocket. Keep them there. 
the first thing you do, do is you weep with those who weep. You just wrap your arms around them. And you weep with them. And you say things like, Oh, brother, I am so sorry. This is so hard and painful. It tears away at my heart to hear what has happened. And you might think that seems, that would feel artificial for me. Well, figure out how to say it your own way. But minister to them with words of care and comfort and love and compassion. Remember Job's friends. Job's friends, who the best thing they did was they said nothing for a week. And focus on loving, serving, weeping with, and consoling the one who suffers. Give them some time. Eventually they may come back and say, Brother, can we just talk about a little theology here? Help me understand what God is doing. I just feel so angry and so hurt. And you can help them carefully, compassionately. Compassion points to the love of God. It drives them to the love of God. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to the list he gives. Shall tribulation, distress, I mean, those are the, the things we're talking about, right? Tribulation and distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This was the persecuted church, right, in Rome? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not conquering people. It's conquering our own hearts. Conquering our propensity towards sin rather than thanksgiving and worship. Matthew 10, 29 through 31 is a great, another great text to use when you're ministering to someone who is experiencing severe suffering. This is what, these are the words of Jesus, right? Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Meaning... They're pretty worthless. I mean, you, you can't, I mean, it's less than a chicken wing. A sparrow. Are not sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This is not self-esteem. This is the love of God for you. This is God's love for you. He's in your suffering. He rules over your suffering. And so administer compassion. Secondly, administer love. Only a slight distinction here, but let me point you to some things. It's been a long time since I've covered this. I think uh, the definition of love you should write this down. I'll repeat it for you so you can get it. And use this in counseling all the time. It's so important to learn this. And honestly, I teach this pretty much everywhere I go. So here's the definition. To love is to give 
what I have that you need because God wants me to, no matter how I feel. To love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, no matter how I feel. You know what that means? If that's the true definition of love, you can love someone you're mad at. You can love someone who's treating you badly. Why? Because love isn't, first of all, a feeling. Feelings come out of true love. But to love is to give what you have that they need because God wants you to no matter how you feel. You want scripture for that? Let me point you to an obscure text. John 3.16. Now listen, if we want to know what love is, we look to God. How does God love? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And what did he give? He gave what we needed. His only begotten son. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life. To love is to give. It's not to feel. Feelings are a part. That's not the main part. How about this? Ephesians 5, 25. Again, we're learning about God's view of love here. So let's learn from this text. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, here's Christ loving the church. What did that look like? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and, what's the next word? Gave. And what did he give? He gave himself. Why? Because that's what we needed. And think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Was that pleasant? Was it happy slappy? I mean, this was the closest thing to torture that he would experience before the cross. You see, he loved us by giving to us what we desperately needed, regardless of how he felt. And that's how we should love one another. Wives, that's how you should love your husbands. Husbands, that's how you should love your wives. You should love your children. And so, you want to love someone? Give. Give. Give of your time. Approach them. Talk with them. Sit with them. Weep with them. Assure them that you will walk with them through this suffering. One of the, the, the most important things as, as we counsel people is not just the counseling they get once a week, it's the interaction with the body throughout the week. Because they're going to be having people speak with them and cry with them and work with them. And give of your time. Assure them that we are not going to cut you short. We will be here for you for the long haul. Give your prayers. God is the one who can meet their needs. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all, what's the word? Comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Give God's word. At first, minister grace rather than theology. 
remind them that God will never leave them nor forsake them, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And they will say, I don't feel God's presence. And you will say, that's what faith is for. You believe God's promises despite your feelings. Give hope. Psalm 119, 68. God is good and does good all the time. Romans 8, 32. I love this verse, and I know some of you just, you know, you have this on your walls at home. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? You say, well, what's the all things? What do you need? Everything you need will come from him. Grace to endure is promised with a trial in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He is near and our help in our time of need, Psalm 46. He's a very present help in time of struggle, right? Remind them that their suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Romans 8.18, 1 Peter 4.13. And then some practical things here. Administer service. Get the church involved. Let me just tell you, if you're new to Calvary Bible Church, if you have a baby or if you have an illness or if there's a car accident, just get ready because you will likely find yourself surrounded and overwhelmed by people who want to serve you. And so administer service. Get involved. Don't just say, hey, praying for you. Get involved. Ask, what can I do? And they're going to say, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And so offer to meet specific needs. You can ask something like this. Has anyone offered to bring you, you and your family a meal? Okay, I'm going to bring you one. Would you like it Monday or Tuesday? You see the difference? Make a grocery list. And uh, make a grocery list, and on Tuesday, I will go take care of your groceries for the day. Please let me take care of your laundry. Don't be embarrassed. I want to serve you. I can take care of your, your children's school this week, or maybe this day. Maybe a week's a little much, but <laughs> how much do you love me? <laughs> how about Thursday? Be specific. Do not assume that others are helping. Talk to others. Talk to the leadership. And find out ways to strategize. We do this in counseling sometimes. There have been such extreme cases on occasion where we had 10 people caring for one person. Include ministry to other family members. It's not just the person who's suffering, it's their whole family. Bring presents for the children, toys, not loud ones, please. Include ministry to their family and friends. You know what? Your unbelieving neighbors will notice. Your unbelieving friends who see it will notice. Some of them will ask. And then simple encouragement. I remember one time 
uh, when my wife had had a procedure. And uh, I thought, well, I need to get to work and you know, try to make sure everything was taken care of. And there was a knock on the door. And I don't even remember who this person was. Uh, there was a knock on the door. And, um, and then as I was reaching for the door, the door opened. And one of the ladies in the church stepped in. And she had two cups of Starbucks. And I said, oh, thank you. And she said, this is not for you. <laughs> and she went to the back where Chris was. And uh, I remember Chris saying, uh, how did you know? She brought not just a, a Starbucks drink, but her favorite Starbucks drink, at least the, her favorite at the time. And it was very, very calculated. It was very thoughtful. Somebody had to ask questions of other people to find out that information. And I still remember it. A little thing like that makes an impact. And, and then administer instruction. There will be a time maybe when it's appropriate for you to remind them of some things that they perhaps have forgotten. Remind them that suffering is to be expected in this life, 1 Peter 4.12. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's relevant, isn't it? Assure them that they are, they are not alone in this trial. Galatians 6.2. Some of these scriptures apply to all of this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Address sin as needed. Sometimes you need to say, hey, can I, can I just ask you a question? You know, when James talks about suffering and calling for the elders and praying, one of the things he mentions is uh, forgiveness of sins. It's always appropriate to ask yourself, um, is there any sin in your life that the Lord might be wanting to bring to light? You can do that graciously, kindly. And they might say, oh yeah, where, where should I start? The Lord's been bringing up all kinds of stuff in my heart. That's good. And if they're insensitive to that, maybe you can help them. So address sin as needed. Help them focus on God's purpose for sufferings. And we talked a lot about that. Remind them that God's faithful, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You have the, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is, is really interesting because it says, um, no temptation is overtaken you but what is common to man and God is faithful and will not allow you to be t tempted, et cetera, et cetera. And what that text is saying is, if you sin in your time of suffering, you did something that you didn't have to do. You may feel like that was the only option because it was so tempting to do it. But the Lord's promise is, and there are four promises in that text, but the Lord's promise is, I am carefully measuring everything for you. Nothing comes your way that is not tailor-made for you. Remind them that God is faithful. You have the power not to sin. I don't quote C.S. Lewis very often, but this one is worthy of mentioning. Lewis writes, God, who foresaw your tribulation, has especially armed you to go through it, not without pain, but without stain.
If the suffering comes from mistreatment, remind this brother or sister of how Jesus suffered as an example. You know why I say that? Because in 1 Peter, that's what Peter tells us to do. Remember the sufferings of our Lord. He suffered, yes, to save you, but also as a model. This is what Peter says. His suffering is a model for how we must suffer in your marriages, at work, wherever. He covers the whole gamut. If you're a slave, if you're a, a wife who's not being treated well, remind them that they are called to overcome evil with good. It goes back to love gives what it has that the other person needs. Remind them that they can still minister to others in the midst of their suffering. You may have to help them with that. Maybe it's phone calls. Maybe it's cards. Maybe it's these days you can get online and provide something, you know, coffee or, you know, DoorDash or something to bless them. Minister to them. Minister to others. Find out who else is suffering in the body and minister to them while you too are wrestling with your suffering. And you know what? That'll help you with the joy factor big time. And if they are unbelievers, call them to repent and believe. Luke 13, 1 through 5, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the disciples are wondering, what in the world did these people do that the Tower of Siloam fell on them and, and killed them all? And so uh, here's, here's uh, Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate spilt and mingled it with the sacrifice, and he answered to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think their suffering was because they were such sinners? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, and were killed, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. You know what he's saying? There is a time appointed to a man when he will die and face judgment. And Jesus is saying, the important thing is not to have these impossible answers given to you. The important thing is that you know that you are ready to die when you die, no matter how you die. The reality is you are going to die. One day you're going to stand before the Lord, and, and then what will you say? Maybe you'll try to say, well, I was such a, a lousy, stinking sinner, I just I would never dare come to you. And he will likely say, my grace was sufficient for you. You could have believed. You could have trusted in me. And if you have yet to do that, maybe today is your day. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that your word truly is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Teach us how to minister your word. Teach us how to love one another. Teach us how to suffer. Teach us how to 
invite people to trust in Jesus. Teach us how to live as husband and wife and children, family members, co-workers, everything. Your word is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so, Father, we're, we're helped by these things. We ask that you would remind us of these things, even as we suffer. May we not be complainers, but rather to be people who magnify the glory of God in the midst of our suffering. Help us, Father, to let our light so shine before men that they see our good response to suffering and in the end glorify God when he visits us. Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name.